turn our, for our first Bible reading, let's turn to Isaiah 37, verses 30 through 32. It's page 598 in that blue Bible, if you're using that. Isaiah 37, starting at verse 30 through 32. Let me give you a little backstory here. Hezekiah and all of Jerusalem are trapped. The king of Assyria has come with his superior power, and they have, have trapped uh, all of God's people that are inside of Jerusalem, and they have taunted them, but they have, worse of all, taunted the Lord. What God, says the king of Assyria, has withstood me? And then he goes through a whole list. No God has withstood me. And then he says, and so Yahweh will not withstand me. And Hezekiah does what you should do when you have that kind of trouble. He takes the letter that the king of Assyria sent him, taunting God and taunting him, and he takes it into the temple and he unrolls the letter in front of God in the temple and he says, do you see what he's saying? And God is responding. And this is part of the response. Isaiah 37, verse 30 through 32. And so the Lord says, and this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself and the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of the Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So now we turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verses 1 through 7 as we continue our series through Colossians. Getting on with the gospel. Getting on with the gospel. So we're just picking up right where we left off. Colossians 2, 1 through 7. So Paul says, he writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. So he's not seen the Colossians or those at Laodicea personally face to face. And yet he's so concerned he's writing this letter. So he goes on to write that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. What I read to you from Isaiah and from Colossians 2 is, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we receive you and rest on you as you are freely offered in the gospel. May we flee to you in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. You may be seated. And so the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide there with lots of space to write notes. So last Sunday evening we were visiting the Ruiz care group. So we, Anna and I like to go around from different care groups. It's really fun to do. For us, it's good because it's, there's lots of different engagements that go on. But we were at the Ruiz care group last Sunday night, and not only did Willow greet us very happily, right? that's their dog, but Hal and I had a great conversation. 
Hal and I were standing around talking about scammers scamming people. You know what I'm talking about, scammers. It's the ones that call you on the phone and tell you that your car warranty has been expired for 20 years or whatever it is, right? Or it's the ones that send you that email from Nigeria, you know, the one where she's madly in love with you and she has $100 million that she got from her now deceased husband, an army general of Nigeria, and she really wants you to have it. And if you would only send her your social security number, a bank account number, she will share it with you because, oh, my beloved, I love you so deeply, she says. Anybody get that email? Am I the only one? Okay, thank you. Or the scammers, and this happened recently here since COVID, just in the last three years, happened here with some of you in our church. The scammers who use my name, they use my name to tell you that I really need you to get me some money so I can help a homeless family downtown right now. It's utterly urgent. And so because time is of the essence, race right out and go buy two gift cards, take off the back covers, Uh, Take a picture of those back covers with the barcode and send them to me by text so I can help these people. It's a scam. Because they immediately then take the $100, $200 you put on those cards and they walk off with it. Or the scammers who, and this is personal experience here, the scammers who show up in our extended families who come and manipulate us. And usually the line of manipulation is, well, if you loved me, And they use that to exploit us. Scammers, scammers, they're everywhere. Scammers scam because there's a payoff. And it works for a season. But then after they have wrung you dry, they move on with different tactics to go scam in other ways other people. My friends, I bring this up because there are scammers aplenty in Colossae the church, where the church is that Paul is writing to. And Paul wants to help these believers to get wise to those scammers. So starting here at chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 4, Paul's doing two things primarily. First off, he is finally getting down to the very thing that concerns him, the trouble that is afoot that's affecting the Colossian church. So remember and recall that everything he wrote about Jesus in chapter 1, 13 through 23 is the template, is the lens from which he will critique, critique the alt-Jesuses, the alt-Jesuses on the offer in the marketplaces. That's the first thing he's doing. He's critiquing. But in chapter 2, one through th- uh, chapter two verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 4, he's also administering the antidote, the antidote to make the troublemakers, uh, to the troublemakers, the deluders, the deceivers, elemental spirits of the world who are potentially infecting this church. He is administering the antidote. So he's critiquing and he's administering the antidote. And so he begins in verses 1 and 2 by revisiting what we already started looking at last week and discussed last week, the uphill push. The uphill push. That's verses 1 and 2. So hopefully, by the way, you have your Bibles open. You won't have a clue what I'm talking about. Okay? Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The uphill push. Notice there's that word again. Struggle. For I want you to know how great a struggle. It's one of those agony words. It's it's part of the family of words that was used in chapter 1, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. And as I pointed out last week, in, in the Greek that this is originally written in, agony 
That's the word, agony. The agony does not mean what you mean. Agony is a gymnasium word. It's a planet fitness word. Right? It's a going to the workout at the gym and actually working on, say, particularly wrestling or martial arts in your sparring. It's that kind of sweaty, toiling, training agony. Does that make sense? He's using the same set of words here. And notice that he says it again. I want you to know the agony, the struggle I have for you and those Laodicea whom I haven't seen face to face. It's a struggle. It's an uphill push doing what Paul is doing. And part of the struggles have to do with Paul is helping God's people to grow in maturity. Isn't that part of the point of this whole letter? Chapter 1, verse 28, him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, what? Mature in Christ Jesus. That's the whole purpose of this letter. And that's a hard road to hoe, especially if you've ever tried to grow up once or twice. You know what I'm talking about, right? To, to mature. It's hard to mature and grow up. And it's hard to help others do the same thing. And so he wants them to mature, and that means helping so that, as he says in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. Their hearts may be encouraged. Now, my friends, there's lots of stuff out there to discourage, to discourage to strip, strip the courage out of the church's heart. That's what it means to discourage, to strip, to rip the courage out of someone's heart. There's lots out there to strip the courage out of the church's heart. There's social stripper. I don't mean, you know, I don't mean, yeah, I mean like paint stripper, right? Right, you got scrapers and you, you strip the paint. There's social stripper. There's family strife. There's governmental stress. There's educational sandpaper, 50 grit that grinds you down. And more just grinds, grinds, grinds. And then on top of that, there's the elemental spirits of the world, as Paul will go on to call them, who with their philosophy and vain deceits and human traditions and moral codes, touch not, taste not, handle not, scrape the joy right off of you. And can pulverize one's faith. Because they're often offering cheap Jesuses. Who can't do you no good. Often offering cheap Jesuses who can't do you no good. And it's those cheap Jesuses that get most of the press coverage. Now don't make me sing that song, that country western song I sang to you last week, okay? But it's the plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car kind of thing, right? It's the cheap Jesuses that are on offer. And so Paul, Paul works hard to fill these Christians up and us with courage, to fill up with courage, to pour courage into us. That's what it means to encourage, to pour courage into but also notice that he works hard to help those who are encouraged, those encouraged hearts, to be knit together in love. That's what it says right there in verse 2. And as I pointed out last week, that's a hard road to hope. That's hard to do. It's easy for us to love our own kind because we do it all the time. We divide all of our groups into us and them. And us, we're the ones closer to Jesus and we're the ones that are lovable. And them, oh, well, that's questionable. 
And so it's hard when you're, especially when you're, when, you know, you're talking about Jesus' work and he draws together a church. It's hard to actually help all people, all those in God's body, Christ's body, to be knit together in love. But it happens. That's what he's working for. And there's a reason for it. So I have to use this sermon illustration. This is one of the knitted blankets back here. A crochet. Okay, for a guy like me, it's knitted, all right? I'm sorry. But I want you to notice, look at the colors in it. If you look at the colors, they're all different colors of strand that went in there, and they're all knitted or woven together or crocheted together, whatever, right? Whatever it is, but they're together. You take one of those strands all by itself, guess what? Janet could probably grab one side, I could grab the other, and we probably could work that thing to where it would come apart. Break. That's not going to break real easy. Knit together, crochet together. It's stronger. And it's beautiful. Do you see how beautiful it is? It's beautiful. And that's what Paul, that's what's hard work. Knit together in love because it's together in love that we're actually strongest. It's knit together in love that we're able to face the storms and the turmoils and the squalls of our world. It's knit together in love. You want to go it alone, you've got to get ripped apart and shredded to pieces. And so it's hard work helping God's people to be knit together in love. And that's what he says here. That's part of the agony, the struggle. And so his language here, this knit together in love, is the inside the sacred society kind of love. The kind of love that actually flies in the face of social polarizations and communal divisions. Now Paul has already praised them for their faith in Jesus Christ back in chapter 1 verse 4. And he's also already praised them for their love that they have for all the saints. So they're already exhibiting this love. And so he's going to keep on working at it so that they really are knit together in love, crocheted together in love. All right? He's going to work at it so they continue. But I want you to notice that Paul is going to make it a top drawer issue in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Here, let me read it for you. Listen to all these little qualities he mentions and then listen to how he brings in love and what he says about love. Put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, and above all these. And above all those wonderful qualities, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect Harmony, as I've said before, this is a top drawer issue. It is right there next to justification, sanctification. It's right there next to penal substitution because Jesus makes it a top drawer issue and the apostles continue to make it top drawer. Paul brings this up because our Lord's new commandment makes it that way. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you love one another by this By this, by this, all the world will know that you are my disciples. That sounds like pretty top drawer stuff. 
And all the apostles make it a top drawer issue, and here it is again. Further notice, he also pushes uphill for them to reach the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. And I changed that word mystery last week to something a little easier for us, maybe strategy. God's strategy that's been there all along and has been made clearer. Too many folks, too many folks in the neighborhood want to cloud and muddy up God's strategy. Therefore, Paul is toiling for them to grow in the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's strategy. Paul toils at their becoming fully gripped by the gospel. That's what he says. Here's God's strategy, which is Christ. Which is Christ. Finally, though it's not mentioned here, it would be later mentioned in chapter 4, verse 12, when he refers to their pastor. And he sets him up as a role model, and he says, talks about that the other part of the, the toil is struggling in prayer that God's people may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. It's an uphill push. Because gravity and society and everything else and all of our genetics or whatever are all opposed to this. So it's an uphill push. Now Paul's not saying this to shame them, as I said last week. He's not calling the Colossian Christians slackers, and he's not setting himself up as some super saint overachiever. It has to do with being faithful to Jesus. And so helping others to be faithful, it's a toil. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. Paul wants them to have the gospel grip. And to increase the momentum in this uphill push, he describes what I'm calling the in-him pull. So there's the uphill push, and now the in-him pull. It's verses 3 through 5. So in Christ, it's in Christ, it's in union with Christ, it's in solidarity with the Messiah that they will discover, verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And notice that it's all related to Jesus whom Paul has just spent loads of sentences describing in chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. The beloved Son, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one who is the firstborn of all creation, who made uh, all things in creation through him and for him, and he holds it all together. And yet, he also is the one who has come as the head of the church and as the firstborn from the dead, is the one who reconciles all things to the Father, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing e evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him in his sight or before him. That's the Jesus he's talking about here. That this is the Jesus in whom is pooled, P-O-O-L-D, pooled and populated wisdom, immeasurable wisdom and knowledge. Unfortunately, Paul says in verse 4, unfortunately there are other Jesuses being offered out there and marketed out there. Notice that as he's talking about Jesus in verse 3, he then says, I say this in order, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
the plausible arguments are alt-Jesuses. I, I tell you about all of this so that you're not swayed by the alt-Jesuses, the other Jesuses put out there on offer in the marketplace. And my friends, there are Jesuses on offer, as I mentioned last week, who will soothe our ethnic sensibilities, who will bolster our social prejudices, who will support our cultural arrogances. There are Jesus being, Jesuses being advertised who will be happy to leave you where you were, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. There are Jesuses being hawked out there who are happy with you staying in the domain of darkness where it feels normal because that's where we used to live and that's where everybody else lives. There are Jesuses out there that are being offered who would be glad to leave you there. Now, before we move on, it's worth asking two questions. Two questions. What Jesus is being presented to you or peddled to you? I use two words because it can be different depending on the realities. What Jesus is being presented to you or peddled to you? It's a question you should always ask. Always ask. Always ask when I'm teaching Bible classes. Always ask when I'm preaching. What Jesus is being presented to us or peddled to us? Ask the question. It's important. But here's the second question that goes with it. Which Jesus is the most tempting to me? Which Jesus is the most tempting to me? My friends, those are two questions you need to be asking always. Which, is the G- which Jesus is being presented or peddled to me and which one is the most tempting to me? I think it's pretty important. Because scammers do what scammers do. They will present you other Jesuses because there's a payoff. It works on someone. Therefore, is it the Jesus, the Jesus that is being presented to you, is it the Jesus who will unsettle many of your ethnic sensibilities, social prejudices, and cultural arrogances? Is the Jesus presented to you the one who is ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords? Is the Jesus presented to you the one who, despite the fact that we were alienated and hostile of mind doing evil deeds, came in and invaded our, intruded into our comfortable rebellion to bring us sometimes kicking and screaming, reconciled to God so that he can present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him? Or is the Jesus presented to you? An alt-Jesus that is satisfied to leave you shackled in the domain of darkness where you are ruled and dominated by philosophies and vain empty deceits of the elemental spirits of the world. It's important to ask those two questions. And so the in him pull is the gospel gripping us. So if Paul's talking about the upward push, the uphill push, it sure helps that there's someone on the other side who's bigger and stronger who then pulls also, right? That's the idea, the in him pull. The in him pull is the gospel gripping us. And drawing us to the very Jesus who is the strategy of God. Where there's the hidden treasure of God's wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
Now, the Colossian congregation had been gotten hold of in the past, is what he says in verse 5. I am, not, I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, their good order. Let me talk about that word briefly. It's actually in the Greek one word. It's just order, but the translators did a nice job telling you in the context what kind of order this is. But it's the same word used over 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, in a very similar way. Where after Paul says, God is not a God of chaos, but he's a God of order and peace, then he says this, that all things should be done decently and in order. I knew there were some Presbyterians here. We like that decency and order stuff. Right? right, there it is. It's the same word being used here. Now I want you to think about, why would Paul bring that up? after he just talked about being swayed by these philosophies. Because, my friends, there's chaos out there. So, so instead of being chaotic, and the religious market was, and it is today, extremely chaotic, the gospel grip helped them, and it helps us to be orderly, to be sober-minded, to be sensible. But also notice, faithful. The firmness of your faith in Messiah. The in him pool settled them down and filled them up. The Jesus is being peddled out there in the marketplace of ideas would like, very likely undo all of that. The Jesus is being offered would rather feed the exhausting soul searching of your hearts as you rage after the newest thing to make you right, to make you feel good, which is all short-lived. And it leaves you empty and jittery, like the crash that comes after a sugar high. Some of us have that problem. I don't know about the rest of you all, but when I'm hungry, it's not good for me to grab a Babe Ruth bar because I get really cool for about 20, sec- 20 minutes, and then it's like, it's like a just nosedive. And I get crankier... That commercial, by the way, is not true. You know what I'm talking about? That hangry commercials are not true because he didn't show you the rest of the story. And these alt Jesuses will be just like that, a little sugar high, and you'll come barreling down, hitting bottom, and you're not satisfied. And you start looking again with all the chaos for something better, newer, fresher. Therefore, my friends, they need to get on with the gospel, and we need to get on with the gospel. Which is how he describes the onward pace in verses 6 and 7, and I hope you are memorizing verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Let's break those two verses down, because this is the onward pace. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So you have to ask the question, well, how did they receive Christ Jesus the Lord? How did that happen? Well, it came about by the unpretentious, the unpretentious proclamation, chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 6, the unpretentious proclamation of the word of, the, the word of truth, the gospel. When they, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, when they heard and understood the grace of God and truth. Well, how did that come about? Well, they learned the gospel. They learned the good words of God from their unpretentious pastor, Epaphras, chapter 1, 7 through 8. 
Now, I think that's deeply significant. I think it's important for us to remember, this is how we receive Christ. We receive Christ because He is declared from the Word of truth, the Gospel, and that's how we come to receive Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ, so walk in Him. I think it's beautiful how it's one of the important facts behind one of our membership questions. When you join a PCA church, you're asked this question. I think it's the second question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? Do you receive and rest upon Him who, who is offered in the gospel? In fact, it's the rock-solid ground of the New City Catechism in their question where they deal with this. And we're in our improving, do- our improving our doctrine. We're right now, we're using the New City Catechism. And so, when the question is asked in the New City Catechism, which we looked at some weeks back, when the question is asked, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Here's the older kid response. Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in His Word trusting in Him and also receiving and resting upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. And Jesus, as He is offered in the Gospel, is the one we need to trust in. But I want you to know, and this is not a diatribe against these other things, but I want you to know that Jesus, as He's offered in the Gospel, does not make for good cinema. The gospel accounts do not make for good cinema. There's too many gaps. You don't even know what kind of diapers Jesus wore. Can you imagine that billboard? You know, what would Jesus drive? What would Jesus wear for diapers? It's not there as a child I'm talking about. You don't know what happened to him from the time he walked away from the temple as a teenager until the time he enters ministry as a 30-year-old. You don't know those things. And even what they declare, what the gospel accounts declare is just a thumbnail of all that happened. Even John tells you, if we recorded everything, the library couldn't hold it all. The gospel account, the gospel references of Jesus does not make for good cinema. And so the Passion of the Christ, which I watched years ago, the Passion of the Christ and the new series that's out now, which I haven't watched, and I said, this is not a diatribe against any of these. The Chosen... They may very well be helpful in making some things clearer to viewers. But because the gospel accounts intentionally leave out details, film versions will pack the box full of filler. Anybody gotten a box from Amazon recently? You know that little, ladies, you know that little makeup kit you bought through Amazon or you guys, maybe a book you bought through Amazon. You remember that big box they sent you? This happens to me all the time. They send you this big box and you hold that box, you go, what in the world? And you pop that thing open and there's all this plastic filler in there. Maybe it's peanuts, but usually it's the air fillers, you know, the big air bubbles. You wasted a whole carton just to send that little bitty thing. It's full of filler. That's what they will have to do, cinema will have to do, and it does. It fills in with lots of filler, lots of packing fluff. To do what? To make the film attractive and to be, keep it attention-keeping. Attention so the question is to always ask, if you watch such things, is this, 
Is this Jesus as he is freely offered to the, in the gospel? Or is this another Jesus maybe? A Jesus who will make us comfortable as the entertained. Or make us comfortable as Americans. Or make us comfortable as Africans. So whatever in there. You know, I still remember, y'all, I'm old. I still remember God's spell. I still remember the original Jesus Christ Superstar. I just heard that they're remaking Jesus Christ Superstar and it's coming in February. And every one of those, they were all touching. I'm telling you, they were touching in many ways, but they were also very comfortable. All of the clownish, miming things, I mean, that's drama. That's the whole theatrical community. I was, I was all into that. Jesus Christ Superstar, I was a head-banging rocker. Right? It was all comfortable. The Jesus in both of those was very, very comfortable. Now, I'm not, I said, I'm not deriding any of those. I'm trying to emphasize the fact you need to be asking the question when you watch them. Is this Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel? Or is this another presentation? But further, notice that the onward pace includes, Paul says, being rooted and built up in him. It's very similar to what we read in Isaiah chapter 37. There, King Hezekiah and Judah, their promise there is that once they've been delivered from the dark Assyrian domain and they're brought out into the liberating light, the promise in chapter 37 of Isaiah verse 31 is this, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward, rooted and built up in him. You should be thinking that language because that's what he's using there. It's the picture, my friends, that we heard in the call to worship of the blessed man and the blessed woman who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. It's only in union with Christ, Paul is saying, Jesus, as he is freely offered in the gospel, that we will be healthy that we will be flourishing, that we will be enduring. To go looking for other soil is to want to become transplanted into soil that is diseased or stripped or unhealthy like Oklahoma red clay. You know what I mean? Anybody ever garden in Oklahoma red clay? It's hard. And so then Paul comes back to where he's, where he's already been, established in the faith just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. They had been shepherded by Epaphras. They'd been cultivated. They'd been de-weeded. They'd been developed by their minister's patient teaching and preaching. Just as you were taught. And so it fostered in them firmness of faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, saying take ownership of that. Get this onward pace. Take ownership of that. Take the initiative to keep up in this onward pace. And that onward pace, if it's down the right trail with the proper Jesus, Jesus as he is freely offered to us in the gospel, then you notice it will be seen and displayed by that last statement, abounding with thanksgiving. Abounding with thanksgiving. 
established in the faith as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. That's going to be the fruit that exhibits and shows very often which Jesus we have received. And Paul will make lots of hay out of that when you get to chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And so, my friends, this is all about gospel grip. The gospel gripping us so that we're not pulled that way and we're not pulled this way. Paul has more to say along these lines, which we'll pick up with next week. But for now, priority one is the gospel grip. Remember the two questions. Is the Jesus being presented to me or peddled to me? Right, which Jesus is being presented or peddled to me? And which Jesus do I find the most tempting? If the gospel grip is there, you want Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel. So does Jesus, as he is freely offering the gospel, have his grip on you? Or are you out there looking for a better Jesus? I mean, there are plenty of hawkers hawking Jesus's. Jesus's that will momentarily satisfy you like a Babe Ruth bar. But they will wear off quickly. And they will leave you crankier than you were before. And in a far worse state. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord God, for the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to us. How it is bearing fruit. As we heard it and understood it, understood the grace of God that we learned from faithful ministers and Bible teachers and others before us. Lord, it is often very tempting and feels like it would be very tasty to take a bite out of one of these other Jesuses and have a little nibble and let that sugar high kick in. But you have given us the best. Your one and only Son. Your son who did not leave us alienated and hostile of mind doing evil deeds. But instead, he broke into our world to reconcile us through his body of flesh by death in order to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Lord, may we always, always, always love your Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.